1: This is the place where the explicit language warning goes. But on this podcast, there is no explicit language. Think of it as like the page on a legal document that says, this page intentionally left blank. It's Tuesday, September 20th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. At a recent rally in Ohio, Donald Trump was, like the documents he possessed, unrestrained and Unbound. His speech ended in a crescendo of rhetoric, but also music. Here's 20 seconds of his ender. My fellow
2: citizens, this incredible journey we're on together has only just begun. And it is time to start talking about greatness for our country again. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one
1: glorious American nation. During this time, many, from the videos I saw, most in the crowd held up one finger. You'd think maybe to match their tribune's words of one people, one movement, one family, but that wasn't what immediately inspired so many to raise their index finger. It was the fact that the song being played apparently reminded them of the QAnon anthem, where we go one, we go all. The portentous buildup, the epic swell that reminded the crowd the storm is coming, which is a cue slogan that Donald Trump also posted in the last couple of days. I was listening to Glenn Beck today making the case that, you know, this could have been any music. In fact, there are lots of songs that have an epic buildup and a swell. My producer, really your producer, Corey, found this... And a bit of this. And I can imagine a legion of Valkyries coming over the crest of a nearby ridge, sure. And deniability that this was the real QAnon song, that was what the Trump campaign was saying. It's a total coincidence, they said. It's just some random fair use music we found online. But that cut was the same exact song as one that is the QAnon theme by a Mr. Richard Feelgood. Get it? Dick Feelgood. Are you own the libs? Track 10 of his latest LP is WWG1WWA, where we go one, we go all. Track 3 is Antifa Assholes. Not going to play that one for you. And as much as Trump's official spokesman and Glenn Beck denied it, the proof was that thousands of people knew to raise their fingers at once, and also that on Truth Social, all the tweets, sorry, all the truths, that's what they call it, said, oh yeah, that was QAnon, at Kate Awakening. At the end of the rally, they played the WWG 1WGA song, and everyone put their fingers up as one cry emoji. Another Poster, tweeter, truther, validation of Q has begun. Trump knows the significance of the song being played, and he did it again on purpose. How many coincidences before it is all mathematically impossible. The significance of Q being validated for anyone who doesn't understand means that Q was is a legitimate military operation authorized by Trump. Poetry Patriot says at the Ohio Trump rally on Constitution Day, while Trump plays the song where we go one we go, all the crowd holds. Holds up one finger in solidarity. Hashtag goosebumps. Hashtag we must work together. So fight about it all you want. Did Trump mean it? Didn't he? His true believers truly believe he did. And you know what? He did. Because just as we all know it, they all know it. And we also know that Trump will play to his fans no matter what song causes goosebumps or goose steps. All the headlines, literal headlines on this in New York Times, Washington Post, Philadelphia Inquirer, headlines like this QAnon flavored soundtrack to Trump GOP's fascist right turn should terrify you. It does, but it's so expected. The song, the fingers, those aren't the scary things. It's what he and his followers literally think and will tell you at a moment's notice. It's their literal deeds, the literal actions that back up their literal stated beliefs. I guess every politician who defends Trump can now field the question, well, what about the fact that this guy plays the Q theme song at rallies? But are the the is really gonna be any more illuminating than the normal sidestepping of that question? It doesn't matter if these crowds hum along to Wagner, Richard Feelgood, or Hakuna Matata. The problem isn't the stagecraft, it's the core substance of the movement. We all know it, and it doesn't need to be set to music. On the show today, Adnan Said is free, and he has a few people to thank. Many in the Maryland State House who have no experience with podcasts, except maybe they've listened to one. But first, Susan Rogers studied psychoacoustics at McGill University in Montreal. She went on to have a decades-long career as a professor, and her new book is This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Okay, academia, very impressive. But before all that, she was the personal audio engineer for a little-known musician out of Minnesota who went by Prince. Heard of him? Up next, Susan Rogers.
3: Hi, I'm Chris Gathard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh. Somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today. Beautiful Anonymous.
1: Susan Rogers is a cognitive neuroscientist and a professor at Berkeley College of Music. She's also a multi-platinum record producer and was Prince's engineer. Her new book is called This Is What It Sounds Like... And I just want to say when doves cry right there, don't I? But the actual subtitle is what the music you love says about you. And that impulse for me to say that, I think that gets right to the liminal and subliminal effect of music, which is part and parcel of her book. Susan Rogers, welcome to the gist.
2: Hi, Mike. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. So just let's uh, lay some groundwork to tell us who you are, as you do in the book. What were you doing when Prince uh, plucked you and said, come to Minnesota and be part of uh, Paisley Park?
2: I was uh, a young audio technician out in Hollywood, California, and I was working for Crosby, Stills & Nash. They had a recording studio called Rudy Records. Out there, right in the heart of Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard. I was their studio maintenance tech. My job was to repair the equipment when it broke down. Uh, I'd been in the business about five years, self taught in audio electronics, but heavily, heavily taught by the audio technicians out there in Hollywood who trained me up. To be a repair tech, and then I heard through the professional grapevine in 1983 that my favorite artist in the whole world, Prince, was looking for a technician. As soon as I heard that, I thought, "Well, his search is over because I'm getting that job. <laughs> I was made for that job." So that's when he uh, he hired me in '83. I moved out to Minneapolis, and he was just coming off 1999,
3: the big tour. But it was
2: And uh, his first number one single with Little Red Corvette. So he was in the process of getting ready to do the Purple Rain movie and album. I joined him just as his star was about to go from stardom to superstardom. And he likes, and you write this in the book, he likes
1: working with women. Why is that? A sense of egalitarianism? Or was there something that you detected in him after many years of working with him, why he likes working with women? Or I think
2: that there were a couple of reasons. One is that Prince had a real fondness for outsiders. Now, bear in mind, in the 1980s, the biggest stars were Prince, Michael Jackson, and Madonna. And um, if you put Prince head-to-head with Michael Jackson, you realize Michael Jackson is like a racehorse. He was groomed by his, his family and by Barry Gordy and Motown and Diana Ross and all the people he grew up with. They groomed him to be a star. And Prince was more like Seabiscuit where Michael Jackson was more like Man-of-War. <laughs> And and, and Prince kind of came from the outside and almost single-handedly managed to reach the same heights of success as Michael Jackson. So Prince always kept that soft spot and appreciation for people who didn't fit the mold uh, and, and he liked to bring those people in and give them a chance as he was given a chance. So he liked working with women because we were so and then and now underrepresented in the technical arts. Um, the other thing is that <laughs> Prince really needed to be the alpha male. If he was going to be uninterrupted and was going to run a tight ship, he couldn't have competition in-house. And women are, are less likely to compete head-to-head like that.
1: So as an audio tech that is not to insult it you loved it but sort of the lowest rungs in music is that unusual an unusual path to uh, in the, in the guild or in the uh, craft of music to work your way up from that position to well certainly not a professor but at least producing
2: multi platinum albums right uh well first things first uh the audio tech tech was not necessarily a low rung in in as part of the crew because you needed a lot of specialized knowledge. I and mean, when I was 24 years old, I was going into recording studios in Los Angeles with, with an oscilloscope and a parts box. And um, But it was Prince who transitioned me from technician into the engineering chair. The engineering and the mixing and the producing is so much more artistic, of course. So, When Prince put me in the engineering chair, I knew audio signal flow. I knew the equipment. I could visualize it. I I knew it intimately. But what I didn't know was how to use the equipment in the service of art. That was unusual. Most texts don't transition to that.
1: How do you think, I don't know if to this day you can listen to music and it would make, if someone explained to you, you know, the uh, producer on that came from an audio tech background versus uh, an instrumental background, would you most likely be able to say, oh yeah, I can hear that, that makes sense?
2: I really doubt it. I doubt it. So when we're producing records, we're doing what every listener does when they're listening deeply. You're listening to that performance, those sounds, and you're searching your brain. You're searching for where the treats are. So as you listen to a record, whether it's in the studio as it's being performed or it's after it's made, you're scanning the rhythms, the melodies, the harmonies, the timbres, the style of the record. You're scanning it with your whole brain and you're asking yourself, does this please me? does it please me sonically does it please me compositionally does it please me stylistically does this please me are there treats there for me Mm -hmm. and the answer is either yes or no Now, when you're a record producer you got to solve the problem of sometimes a record doesn't please you but you've got a good sense that it would please others so Mm -hmm. you have to really understand not only your own listener profile but the listener profile um of your audience, your target audience, to see if we can make something here that's likely to serve up a treat for the listener.
1: Yeah, I've heard you talk about working on records that please the producers and maybe even the artist, but fail to connect to the audience. Uh, I think you were talking about one where the problem was generational. A uh, a Kiwi recording artist who's a young genius, but produced by 40-year-olds and couldn't connect to 20-year-olds.
2: Oh, right, right, right. That was the wonderful, the wonderful Julia Darling. in your- She's just absolutely fantastic. I did some mixing on that record, but uh, she had a couple of producers, my dear friend and mentor, Tony Berg, as well as, for a brief time, T-Bone Burnett. And these are just... The best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are yeah. great producers, but they were listening to her music through the ears of... Um, of men who were a generation older than Julia. And and they were guys who had a certain value system that, that differed from, from Julia's. Now, that's not to say that someone of a different generation can't produce a hit record. They do it all the time. But we still have to be cognizant that the ears we're listening through were shaped by our time and place. Right. And does it can you think of examples
1: where it worked in the other direction, where a producer was able to connect to the audience in a way that the artist alone? Well, I-, I was thinking of one. Just Johnny, and it's in the it's in the book. Johnny Cash doing a cover of Trent Reznor's "Hurt." I hurt myself
3: today to see if I still feel. I focus
0: on the
1: That's very much uh, the genius of a producer figuring out that connection to the audience, I think.
2: Well, this may sound a little bit um, biased, but mm-hmm. I think that's what most producers do. <laughs> I think I think most producers, that's their job. It's to take this raw material, these raw ingredients, and package it in such a way that it connects with the greatest number of people. We have to be commercially successful. This is why the director's job on a film is different from the actors and different from the screenwriters. You've got this script and you've got these actors reciting these lines. You've got a cinematographer framing the shot and deciding how it should be framed. But there still needs to be... Um, an overseer who's considering the big picture, the whole arc of the story and the impact that this film is likely to have. Uh, same thing with a producer on a record. You're looking at the big picture details. And that's great for an artist because it lets the artist focus on the, on the local details, on the minutiae of songs and arrangements and things.
1: Mm. I want to get to your uh, the the seven parts of music that you lay out but what you just said reminded me of a band that you love called Gegita am I saying Mm -hmm. that right? (laughs) yes that's it so they're very experimental and they try to figure out what music is but one of the members of Gegita is a guy named Greg Kirsten and Greg Kirsten is the record producer for Adele
3: hello it's me I was wondering
1: if after all he produced 25 and he produced 30 and he so he's producing 30 when he's 50 let's say. <laughs> mm, what is it if the T-bone burnett can't connect to the 24 year old or produces it for himself and not the audience
3: Hello Can you hear me?
1: what does kirsten do differently i don't know maybe it's because he understands what music is to take this person not of his generation and make her the, not just the superstar that she is, but the exceptional, I use that term advisedly, because you also write in your book that, you know, there are whole years when her number one song is the only n- number one song that's what you call realistic music, as opposed mm. to music that's constructed with, um, with, with mechanical or uh, recorded beats and so forth. So how, how does Kirsten do it?
2: Well, Greg is such a brilliant musician. It's funny to hear you say that he's a generation older than Adele, because when I worked with Greg, it was in the 90s. When I met him, I think he was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. So I always picture him as a kid. Greg is is a highly, highly trained musician. So... He um, studied jazz piano. He studied with Jackie Byard at the New School in New York. He entered the Great American Jazz Piano Competition when he was in his 20s, and he came in second place. And this guy's a brilliant jazz musician. We used to leave the studio at night around midnight, and uh, we'd go to uh, South Central LA where Greg would sit in on sets and just play play bebop jazz. And, and the, the guy was just was was truly truly brilliant, truly gifted musician, and he also plays guitar and so many other instruments, so like some musicians do, they have a career as an artist for a time, discover that maybe they want to get married, they want to settle down, they don't like the road for whatever reason they'd rather work on the other side of the glass, so that's when you start arranging for someone else or uh, you might start um, co-writing with someone else, and next thing you know, you find yourself in the role of producer, who's also an arranger and also a writer. Um, I think you just take all those years of experience with music and uh, you have a better sense of what works. I don't think Greg tries to be a pop record producer, but he, he knows what to do with a great talent like Adele. Mm-hmm.
1: And how does his experience in this somewhat experimental band, Gegita, where their modus operandi was to figure out how music works. How does that, what did he learn, or maybe what did you learn listening to him that explains things that we hear on non-experimental music? Mm
2: Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten. Greg was the Gaggy and Tommy Jordan was the Ta of Gaggy Ta. They were signed uh-huh. to David Byrne's label, the walk And uh And when I first met them, the very first thing I ever heard from them was a, a song called Ready for Rain in an A&R person's office at Warner Brothers Records. And I remember thinking, these guys know something about music that I don't know. It was after Prince, and I was transitioning from Prince into the rest of the musical world. When I heard how they made music, I thought, I've got to meet these guys. I've got to work with these guys. It turns out that both of them, Tommy and Greg, had had all this formal training. Tommy went to Oberlin. Greg went to the new school in CalArts. They had all this training. But what they were trying to do in their early career was to see how far you could pull apart music and have it still function? Just how much can you morph rhythms? Just what can you get away with lyrically and harmonically and sonically and arrangementally? How can you approach music as if a three-year-old made it or as if a 97-year-old made it? How can you make music that expresses our inner musical lives and isn't necessarily tethered to a mandate to sell a lot of, to sell a lot of records mm-hmm. or to show how how virtuoso you are so it was just art for arts sake experiment for experiments sake they taught me more about what music is than than any other artists I've worked with
1: so let's go through the uh, seven parts of music that you lay out authenticity realism novelty melody lyrics rhythm and timber um, Are these, have you created this taxonomy or was it out there already and you're just bringing it to us, the reading public?
2: Um, It wasn't expressed anywhere that I've ever read as being seven, a set of seven dimensions of music listening. These are all um, put together from things I learned in grad school and things I learned in the recording studio. Um, All of them are backed by studies in neuroscience. So naturally, the four components or dimensions, shall we say, of music are musical melody, which includes harmony as well, and uh, the lyrics and the rhythm and the timbres, the soundscape itself. Right. And then in all of art, there are these aesthetic dimensions that... um, cause us to like certain painters and not others, or cause us to favor certain genres of films or books and not others. And that would be uh, a novelty versus familiarity. Some of us like the groundbreaking stuff, others like a familiar form. Um, Another another one is realism versus abstraction. Some of us like paintings or music that's actually representative of the real physical world. Well, Others prefer the more fantastical stuff. Some people like their sci-fi movies or their movies about things that don't actually exist with zombies and flying dragons. Others prefer real-life drama. So that's an aesthetic dimension that's been well-studied. And then the seventh one is authenticity. And for me, that one is going to come, I have to confess, from the recording studio, although there is plenty of work out there on expressivity. So authenticity refers to... What you perceive as being the sincerity in the musical performance, is that singer really feeling it? Mm -hmm. Is that guitar player really talking to you with that guitar solo? Can you can you feel that these gestures are coming from the heart? Or maybe they're coming from the gut or the groin? Or maybe this is purely cerebral music. This is just brilliant thinking. We all seem to have a preference for where we like our gestures to come from
1: of all Prince's hits which was the one that surprised you the most as connecting to the public
2: I think I was more surprised by things that didn't connect mm-hmm. you know the the stuff that connected well I thought I just worshiped the ground he walked on musically. So anything that was a hit for him, I thought, yeah, damn right, as it should be. Uh, I was surprised a little bit that If I Was Your Girlfriend didn't do better. I'm a little surprised by that. If I was your girlfriend, would you remember? You tell me all of the things you forgot when I was your man. Yeah, I'd never heard a a man say that to a woman before, lyrically. I thought it was kind of bold. But the others, no, I wasn't surprised by those hits.
1: Well, I, obviously, you hear the songs and they're amazing, but just what Purple Rain does with the, both being a ballad and then a scorching guitar solo, how often do we hear that? (sighs) Yeah,
2: that was Prince, all right.
1: He,
0: he's, <laughs> he
2: was a dyed-in-the-wool pop musician. He had a fondness for blues and for jazz, and he could play those things a little bit on piano. He certainly loved funk. But at the end of the day, man, could he write hooks. You know, I was thinking last night, in my head, the song Wonderful Ass. I don't know if you've heard that. I think it, it <laughs> no. appeared posthumously. Wonderful Ass is great, but if you listen to Wonderful Ass listen to that lead line. Just just that hook, that lead line. This kid would churn those out every single day. He would write hook after hook after hook after hook. Most successful musicians would be so gratified to have five of them. Prince would do five in a week.
1: Tomorrow, Susan Rogers will speak of such areas as why Ariana Grande makes her a little nervous and why Crosby, Stills, and Nash make better mistakes than some people make music. Join us tomorrow as we speak with the author of This Is What It Sounds Like, Susan Rogers on The Gist. For 23 years, Saeed had served time in a Maryland correctional facility. He has now been released pending a retrial that is unlikely to come. Baltimore Circuit Court Judge Melissa Finn ruled that the state violated its legal obligation to share exculpatory information with the defense and that the state's attorney admitted it could no longer stand by, quote, the integrity of the conviction. So how do we get here? It would be tempting to say it was due to the efforts of the podcast Serial and also Saeed's advocate, Rabia Chowdhury. Serial absolutely told a compelling, captivating story. Chowdhury never let Adnan's story stray far from the mind of anyone within earshot. Chowdhury also put together a great podcast of her own that recognized that storytelling is the medium by which we get emotional connection, and make decisions. And she directed this podcast, Undisclosed, to the benefit not just of Saeed, but others who she and her co-hosts, Colin Miller and Susan Simpson, argued were wrongfully convicted. And it is because of the efforts of people like them, but no. We can't say that Saeed is free because of them. We also can't say that they weren't necessary, but they certainly weren't sufficient. The real story of Syed's freedom goes beyond and maybe even sidesteps the efforts of these storytellers who were in the end right. And we will get there in a second. But first I want to discuss what right means. It's important to note that none of them were right in that they pointed to the real killer. The state's attorney in this case did in fact cite two alternative suspects. Serial did not pursue these suspects to their credit. They didn't even try or claim to. The producers of Serial worked very hard in ways that many, many popular true crime podcasts do not. They worked hard to prove what they had to and not to insinuate about facts they didn't have. When I interviewed Sarah Koenig back in 2014, as Serial was in the middle of its run, episode four, I believe, I asked her how sure was she at that time of how the podcast would end. Do you know how it's going to end? I mean, can you tell me with 80%? Look, let's say I'm going to get hit by a bus and I, uh, or I have a day to live and I'm like, look, I definitely won't tell anyone. Just kind of tell me how it ends. Would you be able to kind of tell me how it ends? Kind of tell
2: you? I think I could tell you with
3: 64, per, 66%. Certainty, how it's going to end. Uh, 70.
2: Yeah, meaning
1: 60, like 70 percent certainty how it's going to end, how the series is going to end. Maybe not put a button on this case in terms of did it, didn't do it, free.
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, I might even back up from 70 to like back to 66.
1: In the end, Koenig landed on, I don't know if Saeed did it. I only know that his case did not meet the standards of reasonable doubt. When I interviewed Chowdhury and her undisclosed colleagues and asked them if Saeed didn't kill Hayman Lee, who did, here's how they answered. It's about a minute and 30 among the three co-hosts. So I wanna, I wanna poll the jury as it were, if you would. What, Colin, what do you think happened here? Yeah, I've said this a few times. What I think is that between lunch when Hey was still apparently
3: giving Adnan a ride and the final period AP psychology class when in front of a few students apparently she said I can't give you a ride something's come up I had something else I have to do
1: that in her class or computer class where no one was interviewed in that class that she got
3: a page from someone outside of Woodlawn that caused her to change her plans the killer possibly is the one who paged her because her pager was never found but his pager records were never obtained again they didn't talk to him in the computer class so it's more of a here's my alternate scenario but i have no idea the identity of the person who paged her or who
1: killed her susan what do you think
3: i tend to lean more towards an unknown party i don't think we have the pieces before us to put together what happened to her i'm not sold on that but that's how i tend to lean now rabia you know, there were a number of, like literally like three or four different serial killers killing young women in the area at that time. So the fact that none of them were looked at, I mean, a number of them weren't caught till later anyways, um, but they were out and about at that time, and they were in close enough proximity to have gotten to her. And the fact that that was never taken into consideration as a serious possibility has always been troubling to me. And I think, because, you know, the, the way the body was hidden, it, it almost seems like this is somebody who
1: knows what they're doing the reason i asked was that as humans who respond to stories we simply want to know in fact we need to know without a conclusion or at least a theory of a conclusion it's not a proper story and the adnan saeed case becoming the adnan saeed story was what kept us captivated but it's actually not quite what freed him. As a legal matter, what's important is the process, the process of investigation, charging, trial, conviction. It was the process that was flawed. You don't have to prove that the result was tainted to prove that the process is flawed. And the Baltimore courts and prosecutors there were correct to recognize this. But most courts don't even give themselves a chance. Most jurisdictions don't either. The Supreme Court of the United States turned down this case without even considering it. The reason Saeed is free is that a little under a year ago, the state of Maryland passed the Juvenile Restoration Act. Justice reform advocates argued that life sentences for juveniles were simply too onerous. Even lengthy sentences to juveniles, as Saeed was at the time of Haman hey Lee's murder, even those sentences should be reviewed. And the law was not passed with Adnan Saeed in mind. This was not Adnan's Law or anything like that. The law was part of a policing reform initiative that the state of Maryland took up. Campaign Zero co-founder DeRay McKisson on this show cited that state as the most effective one in the country. The Juvenile Restoration Act literally had poster children. I mean, there were men when the poster came out, but they were children when their crimes were committed or allegedly committed. And these were, I mean, these posters included 30 different men who might benefit from a sentence reduction. None of those men was Adnan Saeed. A major selling point of the legislation was that 82% of juveniles convicted in Maryland to life in prison are black. Adnan Saeed is not black, though it's plausible that anti-Muslim animists played a role in this case. The point is this was an overall structural criminal justice reform that benefited a person who became a cause celeb, rather than justice for a man who was turned into a cause celeb and that standing in for structural reform. We should also note that the bill was passed with bipartisan support. The Democratic sponsor in Maryland's lower house, the House of Delegates, was Jazz Lewis, a 32-year-old black man. The sponsor in the Senate was Republican Chris West, a 71-year-old white man. Then the bill got to the desk of Governor Larry Hogan, Republican. Hogan is regarded as a fair, principled, moderate, anti-Trump Republican. And the moderate, anti-Trump, reasonable Hogan vetoed the bill. He reasoned that anyone under 18 who was convicted of such a long sentence by definition committed a very serious crime. He didn't discuss the possibility of a wrongful conviction. He didn't, at least in his public comments, talk about the idea that maybe poor judgment of youth factored into some of these acts. Or maybe he calculated that listening to several local prosecutors who were against the bill would better serve his future ambitions. But in any case, after that veto, the legislature overrode the governor's objection. It's not really a story of both sides working together, resulting in prudence, mercy, and wisdom. Chris West, the Republican Senate sponsor, he was the only Republican who supported the bill in the Senate. If Democrats didn't have a supermajority, Adnan Saeed would be in a Maryland correctional facility to this day. So the theme here is less that the truth will out and more of something like Elections have consequences, and sometimes those consequences bend towards justice, but just barely, after many, many years, and after injustice gets a monumental head start. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by assistant producer Corey a senior producer Joel Patterson, and Michelle Pesca could have been the COO, but she'd rather be the Pope. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. oop pru to and thanks for listening.